Hello, hello. This is Artist with M. I'm your host, M. Persico. Today, our guest is Avner Eisenberg. Say hi. Hi, M. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi. Yay. It's very exciting to have you because you're one of like the biggest um, names that I've interviewed so far. Well, maybe one of the oldest. Hmm. Maybe. For, for now. You never know. So... I like to start off the questions with, what kind of artist are you? Are you a clown, comedian, magician, festival performer, hypnotist, juggler, movement enthusiast, etc.? Do all these apply? I think I'd have to say yes to all of those. Yeah. Although I'm generally referred to as a clown. Yeah. But that, that comes with a certain amount of baggage that uh, might not really apply, but it, it's certainly the, it, it's, it's certainly the term that, that uh, comes more most often. people relate to. Yeah. Yes. I definitely relate to you as a clown because that's how I first heard of you in Dean Evans class. The first clown class I ever really took, and I took it several times with him, and we did a lot of exercises that you taught. Dean Evans. And one of my favorite students. Oh, man. Yes. They're very pleasing, Dean Evans. Did you study? He was from Chicago. Yeah. Did you study with him in Los Angeles? He, I guess he's been there quite a yes. few years. He's been in Los Angeles for a while. So Yeah, I just the... recently reconnected. Actually, I think through you, yeah. I reconnected with him. Yay. Was a, That's a so exciting. Trip. Wow. Yeah, uh, Dean has been at um, been teaching at Second City Hollywood for a while, just like their intro to clowning and physical comedy. Yeah, I was so awkward in the first few classes of like with Dean. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to become like natural and breathe. <laughs> I sh yeah, I what shared with my natural? parents yesterday the con <laughs> I know, but it's hard to be to breathe when you're like scared of life, <laughs> scared of things. Here. I share I shared with my parents um the comment you gave me in class yesterday, how you said I was very uh, I think um natural and relaxed when with the entrance uh Uh-huh, you were. Yeah, that's the first time that's ever like been told to me. That's a big step. Because it, it, that's a big step. It's the hardest toward, thing. It's well, it's the beginning of everything, and it's the first step toward making your comfort zone bigger. Mm -hmm. I love that phrase that you you say, making your comfort zone bigger. Because so many acting coaches or people say, "Oh, you gotta get out of your comfort zone," and that's really scary. That's a scary concept. But you introduce like, "Oh yeah, you can make it bigger," and things get easier for you and it's no longer uncomfortable. Yeah. It feels like telling come up with that phrase. It feels like telling someone to get out of their comfort zone is telling them to be anxious and nervous. And yeah. it's it's really painful watching performers who are anxious and nervous. So I think much better to deal with that at a profound level. Uh, and then and then everything after that comes much easier. Mm hmm. That's true. 
I never really thought about what the audience was experiencing whenever I would perform music or anything. And now I'm becoming more aware and I don't want to make them uncomfortable by being uncomfortable. So becoming more relaxed and breathing is is a gift to us all. I think that's a link that's very important to realize that if my perception is that if the performer is uncomfortable, the, the actor, not the character, then the audience will also be experiencing a certain amount of discomfort. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a, a connection that I've heard made before. Uh, it's something that I came up with uh, in in my study of hypnosis, as a, as as it applies to performing, mm. one of the great revelations that you can be aware of what the audience is feeling through their. I just want to say you can feel it. There there are certain sort of micro cues that you can you can mm. observe. But I think once you become aware of it and being aware of how what you're doing on stage affects that, it, it it's one of those watershed moments where you can't go back. Mm, yeah. How did you get into hip- hypnotism? Well, years and years ago, 40 years ago, I was t- teaching a workshop at the Walker Art Museum in Minneapolis. And the workshop was animal movements. And it was a group of children, as I recall, about 10 years old. And we took them through the gallery and looked at various sculptures and paintings of animals. And we had prints of all the things we'd looked at. And then we came back into the studio and did a a very Lecoque lesson on animal movements. But the reference was the the, uh, photographs and prints. And when it was over, uh, one of the parents of one of the children called me over and uh, I'd like to say accused me, but basically informed me <laughs> that I was that I was using Ericksonian language patterns, and I didn't know what he was talking about. I said, I, I really don't know what you mean by the Ericksonian hypnotic language patterns. And it turns out he was a children's oncologist and used hypnosis in his practice. He recommended a book about Milton Erickson called Uncommon Therapy which I devoured. It was a life-changing book for me. He also called his daughter over and in, oh, less than a minute, induced uh, a hypnotic trance and helped her create what's called glove anesthesia. That's where your hand goes numb. And he took a safety pen and was poking her in the back of the hand and she couldn't feel it. And that was fascinating. So I, I, started just on my own studying uh, Erickson. There, there's quite a lot of, written about him, and I was fascinated with it. Some years later, I have a cousin who's a psychotherapist, and he uh, wrote to me one day and said, well, this a, a, a student of Erickson is giving a weekend workshop, uh, and, and since you're so interested in hypnosis, maybe you'd like to take it. So I, I wrote to the guy, and explained my interest, and he uh, allowed me to take the course. I I was the only non-mental health professional in the class, and that was fantastic. Wow. Uh, Then there was a period where I I knew too much. So so before that, I would try hypnotizing people uh, because I didn't know what I was doing, and I had been assured that it could cause no harm. But now I had taken a workshop, but I didn't feel comfortable trying it out. So there was a a period of that. 
And then, oh gosh, about 10 years ago, I had shoulder surgery for rotator cuff uh, damage and uh, decided I would take a hypnosis course. I had six months where I couldn't work and I found a five-day seminar. It was interesting. I called the same cousin and I sent him a bunch of links to courses. And uh, he basically said, look, anything that talks about chakras or energy work, leave, leave those aside. That's, that's something totally different. I finally sent him one. It was the American Hypnosis Training Academy. And it was a very boring picture of people sitting in like school desks in a, in a hotel meeting room <laughs> and a teacher in front of the room with a whiteboard. And he said, take that one. I said, why? He said, the professional training that we do looks like that. I had developed, the reason I wanted to do this, I had developed this notion that when I go to theater and it really works, I and the audience enter into a trance state. I'm hyper aware of what the actors are thinking and feeling and doing to the exclusion of my own feelings. Uh, time is distorted. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll sit still for an hour and it feels like 10 minutes. Uh, but when you go to theater and it doesn't work, it feels like a trip to the dentist. You can't wait till it's over. Mm -hmm. My dentist, of course, he's wonderful. So I wanted to, and I knew that, that hypnotists produce a trance every time. And I know that theater produces it sometimes. And I wanted to find out what could be done from the stage that would produce that result. And the other thing is that I've noticed that the great majority of students that I work with have some measure of stage fright from mildly anxious to paralyzing fear. And I, I knew from my reading that hypnosis is the preferred treatment for stage fright. And I thought maybe I'll learn mm. enough that I could help people. So I signed up for this five-day seminar, uh, got what I needed out of it. It was uh, phenomenal, fantastic. Uh, see, I had noticed that theater training stops at the proscenium. They never talk about the, like you said, they didn't talk about what the audience is feeling, thinking, doing except they're laughing or clapping. I really wanted to find out more about that and if it could be affected from the stage. Uh, the last day we had a, about a half hour left over, the teacher said, well, we've, we've uh, we finished all the, all the course material. I've got some time left over. I'd like to demonstrate a technique for treating post-traumatic stress. And I thought, well, that's way beyond any scope of practice I might ever even be involved in. So I kind of sat back and thought, well, this might be interesting. And he asked if someone had had a traumatic event that was still bothering them, that brought up sort of flashbacks. And a young woman raised her hand and said, yes, that she was a social worker and had had bleach thrown in her face by a street person. She worked in the inner city. And that this had been about nine months before that uh, she, she could not go to work. She was having full-blown panic attacks. And he asked her, well, would you like to change that? And she said, oh, yes. I said, well, come on up and let's talk about it. So we interviewed her. One of the questions was on a scale of zero to 10, how uncomfortable are you right now just thinking about that event? And she started shaking, tears 
She said, about 50. Uh-huh. He said, well, let me ask you a question. If we can cut that in half, would that be good? She said, oh, yeah. She hadn't been able to work. He did this procedure that he went on to. He said, well, I'm not going to explain it, but I'll demonstrate it. I will be teaching it at the next workshop if anybody wants to sign oh. up. Oh, he worked with her for about 20 minutes, which is very short. And if you read anything about working with post-traumatic stress, it's, it's usually presented, well, this, this may take some time, but this could be months of treatment. At the end of the 20 minutes, she was very relaxed. He sort of, so to speak, woke her up from the trance. How do you feel now? And she said, well, maybe a two? Wow. He said, well, when you, when you think about the event, or going to work, she says, yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't seem, it's not controlling me like it used to. He said, well, we need to, we need to check our work. They had decided that uh, two was good. There's an appropriate level of caution. She shouldn't just get out of the car and bop down the sidewalk, see who's there and what dangers there might be. He said, get that old feeling back so we can test our work. She got the strangest look on her face. She said, I can't. He said, why not? She said, it's not there anymore. Wow. I wanted to learn this. That's amazing. About a month later, six weeks later, I took another five-day workshop. She came in late and the class stopped. And we all looked at her and she giggled and said, I'm fine. I go to work every day now. So I was oh my really gosh. hooked. So I, I continued studying for uh, what ended up being about five years. I got certified as a Ericksonian hypnotherapist. I got certified as a what's called a master practitioner of neurolinguistic programming. And then I went on and did an advanced training and became certified as a teacher of neurolinguistic programming and Ericksonian hypnosis. So and, uh, in the back of my wow. mind, it was something I could do sitting down if I ever had surgery again, or if I got where there just yeah. weren't bookings or I couldn't perform. This was another another career that I could could pursue. So that's I a, love that. That's the, the origin story. Yeah, because most of your um, uh, bits or uh, numbers there's a lot of movement involved and you need your shoulder or whatever happens you you need it all it's a full body experience yes i really love um how you brought up um post-traumatic stress and things because i'm actually working with my uh therapist on uh performance anxiety and um I've had a hard time memorizing things and performing uh, scripted things for about like a decade because of um, like traumatic experiences in high school where um, I would get stage fright and it'd be held against me in negative ways by instructors. Like I didn't get into jazz choir because of a stage fright experience I had that, that year. And um Lots of things that were held against me for getting stage fright. And then it just like the trauma kept building on each other. So I didn't do much performing in college because of this stage fright. And I'm just starting to work on it directly. 
to in order to actually audition for things and I can memorize you, things and not get like teacher's name here. if you'd like to like to go see him i don't know if he's wonderful seeing people on zoom uh, but i've been i've been seeing clients on zoom for the past year and a half uh, originally rejected the idea as well as rejecting the idea of teaching clowning on zoom and uh, have found right. both to be very uh, rewarding and successful so i've been my hypnosis practice is yeah. toddling along and and so is my my teaching while well, i haven't done a show since last february yeah i love that speaking of clowning and zoom how do we know each other well you you popped into my awareness in a little box on a on a, a zoom class uh, yeah this uh, this all started in la by the way there was a workshop that uh, had to be canceled back in yes. whatever it was february march i was signed up for that one the year before oh you were in the live workshop yeah and the, the one that was at jack and jerry's the one that got canceled yeah and then uh, they asked me well can't you do something online i said i don't see how we could it's a physical workshop and i guess they asked the people in the workshop and and it seems like we had six or eight people uh and the group said yeah we'd, we'd like to give it a try i said look it's a it's purely an experiment it may not work out but let's let's give it a try and i found it i, I put some work into designing the curriculum and uh, i think it, it turned out spectacularly well yeah. uh, and after yeah. that i got a request uh from a school in germany where i've taught for the past four or five years and they said would you first they said we're not doing anything online i said Fine. they they called back a well wrote back a couple of weeks later and said we can't open would you be willing to do something online i said sure and laid out the, the mm -hmm. system 12 12 students uh six weeks two hours one day a week for two hours and i'll give uh, assignments to make little short videos and uh the mm -hmm. celebration barn which is where i had been teaching for over 30 years uh same thing they said we're putting together an online uh series of workshops would you be willing to lead one well they've been completely sold out ever since the first one we did last spring and uh yes. at last count it was over 300 students from 34 different countries and we're so yes, that's the magic about yours. Well, thank you. Your workshop really draws in international people from all over. The eccentric principles workshop. And not all of them that I've been in through other people have such a world renowned aspect as you do. So really getting to know clowns of different origins is really magical. Well, you know, a lot of that is really the magic of YouTube. Uh, it has been a game changer for performers who teach because people can see your work. And uh, that, yeah. that has really opened up and changed things. Uh, most of my work the past 10 years has been outside of the United States and uh, a lot in South America, in Asia and in and Europe. And that's pretty much all of it. And most of your performance is like nonverbal anyways. You use like a kazoo and right all of it yeah so it really works internationally yeah i don't use the kazoo anymore oh really although here's a funny story i was on a cruise ship with uh jack parr 
I don't know if you know who Jack Parr is. Mm -hmm. He he invented the the chat show, uh, and, and it was fantastic hanging out with him. The performers on a cruise ship tend to sort of gravitate together and have meals together. And he'd be talking about Judy. He was talking about Judy Garland, Bobby, Bobby Kennedy, Jack. He knew all these people. Wow. At any rate, one day we were sitting around the pool. He said, what is that thing you have? Because I was using the kazoo. He had never seen one. And, and I, I got one and gave it to him. He, he had never seen one. He didn't know how to use it. And he was like a little kid with it. And I showed him how to hum into it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I can't remember which show. It seems to me it was in uh, Rhode Island or Delaware, maybe in Delaware. At any rate, he came with his grandchildren to see the show, which Aww. really, really touched me. Uh, so that was a little sideline about kazoos. But I stopped awesome. using the kazoo because... I stopped doing the two numbers that that used it. Mm, the slack rope one. The slack rope and the, the thing called paper balls over the head. Oh, do you no longer get on slack ropes? I haven't done it in years and years. Yeah. It, I, I I did it for I don't know twenty five thirty years. I had a and I because I tour by airplane. I couldn't take the rigging with me. And I, I never had a kind of an intelligently designed tour. I remember getting a list of dates from my agent and uh, saying to them, I'm, I, I know what your Christmas present is going to be. I'm going to get you a map because yeah. it was California. Yeah, Florida, Michigan. Was all, and then you're going to Europe. At any rate, I had an agent in Germany and I had a series of one-nighters booked for two or three weeks, um, and there was no way. And I would, so I would have the slack rope built in each, each, uh, in each theater. Uh, these were at uh, little cultural arts centers, and, and uh, there, there was no way to build a slack rope in these, in these places. It's the kind of thing where you, you couldn't even get into the place till six o'clock at night. And we used to show up at 10 in the morning to put the slack rope up and do all the lighting. On these shows, it was you, sh you show up at six o'clock and, and work out a couple of light cues and, and you know where do I put my props? Uh, so I rewrote the show around the slack rope and did this whole, uh, a whole tour without doing it. When I came back, it was, I, I did it a few more times but realized that it was, life was so much easier without it. And I was yeah, getting yeah. older. I had some back problems or a couple of moves on the on the rope that I didn't want to give up, but I didn't want to do them anymore either. So I, anyhow, I stopped doing yeah, the rope. Yeah. No one has ever come up to me after a show and said, geez, really missed that slack rope. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so magical to watch. I watched your video of it, but I can imagine not being able to do it forever. Especially since you had like so shoulder surgery. Yeah, yeah. So I gave that up. Uh, the uh, the other one was interesting. It was actually on the same tour. I was still doing the paper balls over the head. And that is a trick where you do a magic trick where little balls of paper vanish over and over and over for one person. Mm -hmm. The whole audience sees what you're doing, but they don't see it. And I had a marvelous routine. Uh, 
early on, in fact, when I was on Broadway, I had been working with musicians who played music. People were hearing where the paper was going. They, they would hear it hit the floor, in fact. And, and that's when I started using the kazoo to cover the sound of the, uh, the paper hitting the floor. I don't want to give this, the trick away. At these cultural arts centers, it would be almost like a, the route was the same. And uh, mm. several times they said, ah, oh, we love that trick. So-and-so did it two weeks ago. Oh. I thought two things. Number one, I'm getting the same audience because they were two weeks ago. And if they already know the trick, it's not going to work. Yeah. And I didn't want to be doing something that other people were doing. Like the idea that and it's necessary for the show to be original. Pretty much stopped doing it after that. I had a couple of times. I remember once often the person that I get on stage, I can tell they know where, the, where it's going. And I've asked a couple of them and, and they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm married to a magician. Oh, no. <laughs> but my favorite one, a woman was up. She did a great job. I knew she knew. After the show, I ran into her in the lobby. I said, you knew where the paper was, didn't you? She said, yeah. I said, how'd you know? She said, you were here three years ago. Oh, my goodness. You picked me then, too. She was your favorite. She was my favorite. That's funny. Because some people just have the light in their eyes like, yeah, you can totally pick me. I really love your napkin eating number. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's amazing. I showed my mom while we were waiting for my dad at the bank, and it was just, like, so fun. How many napkins do you think you've eaten in, so far? How many napkins have I eaten? None. Yeah. None. Because you just keep them in the side of your mouth? I'm not going to tell you how I do it. They're all tissues. Oh, <laughs> that's so funny. Oh, dang it. I'm trying to, you know, I haven't done it in two years. It seems yeah. to me, I think I put 25 out and there are always about 10 left over. So they're, they're extras wow. as a contingency. If something happens, uh, I have a few extras to, to. Uh, yeah, just uh, in case. To, yeah, just in case to cover time or make up for something. Mm. So roughly 15 per show. Wow. I've seen, like, because you do many aspects for that number. You do a wine bit, tissues. Oh, yeah. Sharing with the audience. You share so much like, oh, what is happening here? But also Mr. Napkin Head. You, you put a napkin on your face and you put your glasses on. Did you invent That's that? That's right. Because I've seen it on. Yep. You have? Wow. Because I, I saw that on the movie The Holiday with Kate Winslet. And um, one of the guys does the napkin head and has the cigarette and he puts on his glasses with the napkin. So I, they probably stole that from Interesting. you. Interesting. Oh, I wouldn't yeah. say that. It seems fairly no. obvious. I, I, I can say for a fact um, that I invented that. In 1974 or five, and I doubt most of them were even born then. Uh, well, the writers remember, probably. Yeah. yeah, I remember. So the movie came out way after that. Yeah, I remember specifically when and how I invented that, and it took wow. a few years to put the whole routine together. It started out as a little throwaway gag uh, on, at a cafe theater where I worked in uh, Minneapolis. And mm. uh, slowly it became the thing that nothing could follow. Really? 
So you do it more than just in the napkin eating routine. You you bring it up. You have a whole bit with it. No, no. I used to. Uh, I don't know if you've seen my show. I've seen parts of it. No. Okay, you can see the whole thing now on Vimeo. There's a, a link on my webpage, Yay. and you, you can finally see the whole thing. I have a number I do with a about a six foot tall stack of paper cups, oh. and I was working in this cafe theater, and I used the same cups that they serve drinks in. And I would have the bartender put my cups up on the end of the bar. I would see them from the stage. And it looked like I was improvising the whole routine. And uh, there were bar napkins on the bar. And uh, as, as I walked by, I picked one up and ate it and kept going. And slowly turned into, I ate more of them. I did the face. I did, I did a lot of little tricks with the napkins on the way to get the cups. Oh, I love that. When I had uh, enough little bits then i started thinking well what 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 else could i do well it'd be really nice to get thirsty and produce a glass of water but water won't show up so a glass of wine mm-hmm. and i was working it was kind of a bar so it made sense to uh, produce a glass of wine um, there's a theory in magic that n- nothing should vanish completely. It needs to come back. Mm. So I, in some discussions with other magicians, came up with the idea of well, all this papers uh, disappearing. If I'm just eating it, it's not much of a trick. So it'd be much more interesting if it could come back but transform. Originally, I wanted to do paper dolls, that I would pull out a whole string of paper dolls linked together. Uh, and I worked on that for a while. And then I came up with, in discussions with uh, Larry Kahlo at the Eagle Magic in uh, Minneapolis, he said, well, what about these? And he showed me the, the colorful streamers that come out. And then he showed me how to make a, a big bouquet of flowers come out of my mouth. And I thought, oh, that's wow. really poetic. I, I love that image, that kind of raw materials gets, what, what do they call it, value added and becomes colorful Yay. flowers. <laughs> wow. I was so surprised at the end when the flowers popped out. I was like, oh my gosh, where could you hide that? It was so crazy. I am not one for knowing about magic, so anything like that is like, what? Wow. <laughs> Jeez. I love how the napkin aspect came up organically. You know, do bits usually come come up organically like that? Or just like, oh, this could be a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much everything in the show came up that way. Yeah. 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 You also do a lot of things with cleaning. Does Did that happen organically? The uh, cleaning developed. I was in uh, the Comedy of Errors, which uh, was at Lincoln Center with the Flying Karamazov Brothers and a whole host of other new vaudeville performers. And in the show, I ended up, it was a bit of an amorphous character, but I ended up playing the janitor of the theater who gets trapped in this production of Shakespeare. And the director came to me, we had a couple of weeks of previews, uh, one of the luxuries of working uh, sort of on Broadway in New York is you 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 can have four or five weeks of previews, and he, he came to me and said, "We're people, they think this is serious Shakespeare. It's, they're they're not really sure it's a comedy. Uh, it'd be nice, if, and I'd like you to write a prologue." 
and I want you to accomplish a few things. He said, I want you, sorry, it wasn't, it wasn't in New York. This was in Chicago. The first time we did it was at the Goodman Theater. And Robert Woodruff, who's the director, said, I want you to accomplish a few things. I want you to get laughs. We got to get some laughs going here. So they know it's okay to laugh. Yeah. I want you to, I want you to break the fourth wall. And I want you to introduce the story. And I took about three days and I came up and I believe that whole routine from the comedy of errors is on, it's on, it's on YouTube. It's on my website. You can click on it and see it uh, exactly the way I did it. Um, So I came out to sweep the stage before the show, did the whole cigarette matches routine, swept them into a trap door. Uh, Tim First, one of the Karamazov brothers, looks exactly like Shakespeare if you dress him up and fix his hair. He came out of the, he popped up out of the trap door angry. He he was working on a play, uh, his cigarettes and matches and paper all in his hair. And he looked at me like to kill, came up with his trash can and dumped it on the stage to say, here, clean this up, clown. Oh. So I I cleaned up the paper that he dumped on stage. There's a magic trick called the torn and restored paper. You take a newspaper, tear it into lots of pieces, and boom, it opens back up and it's completely intact. So I used the restore part of that trick. Uh, I picked up the, the scraps of paper and I tried to tried to put them together like a jigsaw puzzle. What's he writing? What's he writing? And all of a sudden, boom, it opened into a, a broadsheet that said Syracuse Merchant Caught, which was the theme of the beginning theme of Comedy of Errors. So uh, when we finished the run and I went back to my day job, so to speak, I thought, what a wonderful uh, way to start the show. So I started starting the show sweeping and I would sweep the cigarettes and matches uh, off stage and an angry stagehand with with cans on would come out and dump a trash can on stage. And it took a while to figure out that I could just have the paper on stage already. I didn't need the I didn't need to train a stagehand to do it. And that's how that mm-hmm. that's how that routine came around organically, as you as you say. Mm, that's so cool. Wow. So how did you get into your art? into clowning or performing? Well, theater. I, uh, I was a chemistry and biology major when I went to college. I was at Tulane University and it was the 60s, which is important. And I got caught in a thunderstorm and the closest building was the theater. I didn't know it at the time. I ran into a kid I knew from the dorm. He was there to try out for a play. So it was still raining. I thought, well, what the heck? And I got a part in the play. And that was my beginning of my interest in theater. Wow. So it didn't start way early in life. Oh, God, no, I wasn't interested at all. Although I was uh, on the gymnastics team in high school. I was a diver. Uh, I juggled. I did a little magic. So the the, the raw materials were there. Uh, So while I was there in theater, the uh, man who was the stage manager uh, for this show that I was in told me that they were having auditions. He knew I was interested in movement. Oh, it's kind of funny. They told me I should take a movement course. I thought, oh, okay, what's that? And uh, I went over to the theater department and there were no movement classes that semester. They said, but you can go over to Sophie Newcomb 
the women's college and take a dance class. Well, the only dance class that was available was a ballet class. And oh boy, I looked like Ichabod Crane in tights. Uh, but I really was a, uh, was the beginning of a, a love of movement and movement theater. So uh, at the time, uh, Johnny Simons, who was one of the first minds in America, I, I'm not sure, I, I want to say he was a student of Jewel Walker. But the, remember, this was in '66, uh, I guess. There, there weren't any minds around. Uh, and he was directing a, he had started a theater in Fort Worth, an outdoor summer theater called uh, the Hip Pocket Theater. And he was in New Orleans directing a Commedia dell'arte, which I'd never heard of, production of Pinocchio. And wow. uh, I went along and auditioned and got a part in that. And that was my introduction to, introduction to mime and movement theater. And while I was there, my best friend from high school came to visit we borrowed some sort of costumes from the uh, theater department and went out and juggled on the on in the french quarter and passed the hat and uh, it was pathetic but it was but it was wonderful yeah just getting out there is the hardest part yeah we didn't we didn't have juggling equipment we juggled fruit and i had two wooden Indian clubs that weighed about two pounds each or deadly clubs that were used for ex exercise. That movement that we do in the workshop is usually done with yes. those Indian clubs. Uh, so oh. that was the beginning, doing uh, street performing. That's crazy because I have some plastic clubs and just, just when it hits the tip of my finger, I'm like, oh my God, this hurts so bad. And they're not even that heavy. So just a, I can't even imagine you juggling those heavy two pounders. And we only had wow, two. Of them. That's very dangerous. Oh no, we, that's awkward. We only, yeah, we 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 part of our rap was that we were gonna if we didn't get any money to buy food, we were gonna have to eat the act because we were juggling fruit. Oh, <laughs> I love that. That's so cool. Just like when you eat your uh, your napkins, yeah. that's the act. You're eating the act. <laughs> you know, you can't do it a second time if you've eaten too many that's of right. them. <laughs> wow. And you also studied with uh, Jacques Lecoq. So Lecoque. I graduated college. Uh, I was at, I went counterclockwise. So I, I, spent, I, I left New Orleans because the, the theater department in a spat with the administration resigned en masse and I just become a theater major. Uh, wow. I moved back to Atlanta where I did some, I, I got into some theater. I was in the, uh, worked in, in two professional theaters in town uh, and auditioned for NYU while I was there and got accepted into the uh, School of the Arts. Uh, then spent a year in NYU officially in the design department, but taking Hubby Burgess's circus classes and a, a real co collection. I was no designer, but I, I did, really didn't like living in New York. That summer, I came to LA for the first time, first time west of the Mississippi, uh, except for wow. swimming across it once, but I don't <laughs> think that really counts. <laughs> and I worked, I was really into Israeli folk dance at the time and had studied Israeli folk dance uh, in New York. 
And the, the guy who was the piano player for the folk dance group was the director of a Hebrew speaking summer camp in Ojai, which is just north of, of LA. I, I went to a Hebrew day school and I, I sort of semi-functional in Hebrew. And he offered me a job to be the uh, Israeli dance teacher at the camp. So I, I thought, wow, that's great. And uh, anyhow, uh, ended up taking a little road trip up to Seattle uh, afterwards, fell in love with it. I had, had finished three years of college. Uh, and so I moved to Seattle, was working, doing Israeli folk dance and street performing and this and that. And uh, went to the university of Washington and basically took too many classes. I graduated yeah. and I'd sort of always wanted to live in Europe and had missed the opportunity. And I had seen Marcel Marceau and I thought, well, I'll go to Paris and study mime. I got interested in mime. Uh, I couldn't find Marceau's address in the Paris phone book. This was before the internet. And I had met Lecoq when I was at NYU Lecoq came and gave a lecture demonstration. And because of my interest in mime, they assigned me to be the technical lecture. I had Lecoq's business card. Never in a million years thought I would go there. But I thought, what the heck? One mime school is as good as another. So I wrote to them. And sure enough, I got accepted uh, for what was a three-month audition period and uh, graduated and uh, uh, packed my satchel and moved to Paris. Dang, was there a lot of good food in Paris? There probably was, I didn't see much of it. I was on a real budget. No? Well, I didn't go to any fancy, oh. you, you can't find a bad meal there. Let's, let's put mm. it that way. Wow. But I didn't go out much. I, I had a little amazing. apartment, which I shared with another student the first year. And second year, I had a little room. Great wow. food in Paris. Yeah. And so, like, it's all about movement that uh, Jacques Lecoq does, right? Uh, the name of the school was a called a Mime Mouvement et Théâtre, Mime Movement yeah. and Theater. Yeah. So it's a yeah. movement-based, but it's really yeah. all-encompassing, yeah. and even some text work. Wow. I actually took a movement class on Zoom uh, around the time I first took your class, the first class I took uh -huh. with you. So I learned all the different like positions. Was a, a Lecoq based class? Yes, it or was. The, the crew. Do you know who I think Lecoq. Um, it's through the uh, like a New York um, theater company. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'd have to check. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Was it Nor who, who taught it? Was it Norman Taylor? No, it's a younger guy. I'd have to check because I'm not good with names. And I think his name was a little difficult to say. It was very enjoyable. I couldn't, couldn't believe how informative, like how you hold your body is to how you're like presenting or the, the feelings you get from just doing it or from the other person receiving it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure that having done that, the things that we did in the workshop together made a lot more sense. So that's my yeah. practical and theoretical basis for movement. Yeah. I don't know. I It takes me a long time to process what I'm learning. 
So that's why I'm retaking your class now. So like little by little, these classes are seeping into like the the pot of knowledge and insight. How is it for you taking the class a second time? I like it. Because like doing the assignments or just the exercises, I'm like, okay, I know we've done this before. I have no idea what we're doing. Oh, yes, this one. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's something new that you've, you've said that I did not process the last time. Okay, now it's see, see, sinking in. Well, that's nice. Lots of people have taken it multiple times. And uh, several have taken it as many as eight or nine times. Wow. And several of them have their own one-person shows now that very much came out of the workshop. So wow. the first time, it's like you said, it's a little bit of a mystery. We're doing what and why are we doing it? Yeah. And the second time you go, oh, yeah, I remember this. And you have an application for it. You know where it's going. Yes. That's what I need most of the time, knowing where something's going so I can process all the details as you say them. Well, it's, a, it's such a pleasure yeah. having you back on the class. It's like having a friend. Yay, definitely. I always have your uh, wife's book to hold up when we do do the class. Yeah, it's fun. And the more I take your class, the more you talk about things. I'm like, okay, now I'll read this specific chapter and I'll le learn even more deeper things about it. Have you watched her video? I still have yet? to peruse it. Not yet. Oh, you I'm must. excited to now because I'm just you really, you yeah, because really you'll see all the principles, yeah, but without the dressing of saying, okay, this is a principle, this is an exercise, they're just incorporated right. in the work, and yeah. they're brilliant. Yesterday, you described the suitcase and the and the um, rug and sweeping the dirt under the rug. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Oh, I already have the book. Oh, wow, I have everything I need now. Now go look at the when video. I'm, every time I get inspiration. Yeah. Yay! And you can get your own so, suitcase and your own little rug. Oh, I could. And I could easily fit in any suitcase, really. I'm small as well. I'm four foot ten. Huh. Yeah, you can't really tell on Zoom, so no one knows. No one knows. Yeah. No one knows. And um, I'm coming up to Maine for a week for Shannon Kelcut. She's going to be teaching. You told me that. Yeah. When are, when are you coming? August 1st. You know, I think I may be out of the state. Oh, no. I'm going to be uh, driving with helping a friend move out to Northern California. To oh, wow. Way That's up, exciting. Way up north in Wairika. And I Thanks. think I'm almost certain not to be here. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd love sad. to invite you out to, you know, I live on an island. Yeah, next time. I'll have to come out for a few more days for another um, intensive there. Well, there are lots of them, and that'll be great. Is this your first time at the barn? Yes, I've never been there. I've never been to Maine either. You're, you're going to love it. Yeah, because I'm hoping to work on a um, show or at least characters with my clown partner, Tiffany. She's going to be um, there as well. Tiffany. She's in our class. She is in the class. Yes, the redhead. And she's not coming to, you're in the Tuesday group, right? No, Saturday. She wasn't, she wasn't here yesterday. Everybody right. wasn't there yesterday. Yeah. Well, she was visiting her mom, I believe. Yeah. She wrote, she, she was one of the, one of the ones that wrote to me. I, I, I wrote, yeah. did you get, did you get the uh, replay in your email? I sent yes, it out today. this morning. Okay. I checked. Today. I saw the email, but I didn't check the video. Yes, today. Yeah, yeah I sent it out today, and I, I mentioned that just that we missed everyone. And 
I feel like the entrances was really enjoyable with a smaller class too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think it's possible to do a class. Although I have a plan. I own a little studio. It's a loft in Portland. And I was making plans when COVID hit to take about six students for about three months. Wow. That's amazing. And we would meet probably between three and five days, which I guess is four days a week. Uh, what makes it possible, I've never done it before because housing, couldn't provide housing, but now with Airbnb, and it's, easy, I though. think it's really easy to get housing in the winter. Oh, wow. Come to Maine in the winter. So I'm going to six or possibly eight students uh, for about three months. Wow. Um, and specifically to work on shows. Well, I have to see who, I haven't really formulated, somewhere between one and three months. I guess that turns out to be about month and a half or two depends yeah. what people can afford in terms of time too it's hard totally to... i'd probably only be able to do a month would not just like yeah i would just be able to do like be gone a month probably that's what i'm that's what i'm hearing from people that a month might be really about the maximum so i would yeah. limit it to people who'd already had a workshop so we don't have to do all mm -hmm. the beginning stuff from the, the beginning, basics. although we re re repeat all of it. And it should people, yeah. be people that are already working on something so that where, where we look yeah. at videos now in the workshop, there would be, we would look at people's ongoing work on those shows. So yes. that's in the works. That's in the works for next year. That would be awesome. That's exciting. Yeah. Wow. That's so, that's so wonderful that you continue to teach and recreate how you're teaching and give new opportunities to people. Well, teaching is, has been a very interesting journey. I think in the, in the beginning as a teacher, the emphasis is on how much the teacher can bring to the students. And I think if one gets to a, over a, going down the other side of the bell curve, how much are the students able to take away from the teaching? is much more important now than how much the teacher can bring to the class. Mm. In your life, have you found a balance with your many interests and pursuits? I think so. Yeah, yeah. and you incorporate so many aspects of them to everything, like Aikido, that's really relevant to um, clowning, and so is hypnotism and being grounded as a person. How did you find Aikido? I was, uh, well, the very first time I was, when I was in Paris, one of my fellow students invited me to go along to a, a I don't even know what it was, and they were speaking French, and I didn't really understand, it. It was a Japanese guy, who I thought was dressed in some kind of ceremonial thing. I know now that he was in a, a, a typical Aikido, uh, dogi it's called. Uh, he did a little demonstration and, and was speaking English, and he talked about, Aikido. And my friend had been practicing. I, I remember this, uh, uh, the, the instructor, the demonstrator, he talked about if someone is holding a gun. And in Aikido, we practice what are weapons takeaways, but not really seriously. You wouldn't want it. You wouldn't want to count on it. Philosophically, it's interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. So the uh, instructor talked about somebody has a gun and it, 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 it stuck with me all these years. He said, we're terrified of the speed of the bullet. 
and he had a demonstration, someone who came with him who was holding a gun. He said, we don't have to worry about the speed of the bullet. It's the reaction time of the other person. He moved like that. And the guy was flat on the ground and he was holding the gun. And I went, wait, what, what happened? What did he, he didn't fight with the guy. He just went like that. And the guy was on the ground. What the hell's, what happened? So, and I asked my friend if he'd ever used it. He said, well, a policeman, he, he was there in Paris in 68. Oh, man. When they had the big riots. He said a policeman came to hit him with a stick. He said, well, I took the stick away. Oh. I said, what'd you do then? He said, I put it down and ran. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but he took, he took it away. Uh, wow. I guess the policeman couldn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> Did I tell the oh, story? No, I, I told it in uh, somewhere else. I, I, uh, one of the things that I learned as a street performer was watch stealing. And when I bring a volunteer on stage, I'll occasionally take their watch and then I have a funny way of giving it back at the end of the mm. show. And I was at a Renaissance fair and I got a guy up uh, to do something and I took his watch and then I gave it back during the show. After the show, I was sitting on the ground just organizing my stuff and a hand came down in front of me with a little leather wallet that popped open. It had a detective shield in it. And I looked up, <laughs> the guy just burst out laughing. It was, he couldn't believe I picked a policeman's pocket. Oh, I love it. I'm, I'm so literal. I want to ask you how you do everything, but I'm like, you're not going to tell us all the tricks. <laughs> Dang it. Magicians. So, so sneaky. <laughs> years later, I was teaching at the Delarte School in, in Blue Lake, California. And George Toad, who was a friend of Carlos and who was very active, he was a black belt in the local Aikido community. Carlo got him to come over and do a, uh, a one class for us. And it just uh, rang true to me in terms of movement, in terms of philosophy in terms of counterintuitiveness. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, I just went, wow. I, I, I felt like something I'd been searching for. And there's an Aikido dojo in Eureka. Uh, and I uh, immediately started going over a couple nights a week and practicing. And I've been practicing ever since. Mm. Are you a black belt or something? Because yeah. I remember you yeah. were. Yeah. Is that the term you guys use? Yeah. Yeah. Since I've heard about Aikido, when I first started taking clowning from Dean Evans, since he trained with you, he knew about Aikido, and he would talk about how it's what clowns tend to do. And so since like two years now, I've been planning on joining an Aikido dojo for this reason. I Everything trickles it. down from Avner. <laughs> <laughs> Everything if trickles you down. decide to do it and want to find a dojo, uh, I can recommend because there are some that are more martial and more oh. a little rougher and some that are more philosophical and would fit more in oh. with your interest in clowning. I would recommend that go in that direction. For example, in Aikido, yes. we never try to beat the other person. Once they've attacked us, we try to protect them and make sure they don't get hurt. Yeah. I definitely prefer gentleness for any any type of um, learning situation or just life in general. You would like it. And there are so many life lessons in Aikido. 
How have you been spending your time lately? I've been baking sourdough bread from scratch. Mm. I walk the dogs on the beach every day. Wow. Teach a little on Zoom. It sounds like a singles ad, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does sound like one of those commercials. So do you have any projects that you would like to promote this year coming up? No. No, things are good. No. Keep walking the dogs. Yeah, things bread. are good. Yeah, working on a book. Oh, that's exciting. And, yeah, we're about, last I heard, we were about 25, 30,000 words into it. I'm writing it with Fritz Groba, mm. who is the uh, uh, recent, recently uh, uh, the president of the barn, but he's one of the ones who took the workshop nine times. So he really knows the work. And we've been friends for a long oh. time. And he's a, he's a writer. He's written several books. Uh, and uh, we've been meeting once a week. And it's it's basically the curriculum of the, uh, the workshop, plus some other stuff that we can do live. And uh, so that's exciting, wow. finally. Is it going to be a similar format as um, Life in a Clown House, a manual and a memoir? Is it going to be similar to a manual? It'll be more the manual with some some stories, but Julie set out to to tell stories from forty years of performing, and they're wonderful, mm. wonderful stories. You'll find a lot to laugh about and to cry about. Aww. Uh, yes. More of a of a manual. Uh, one possible title is is clowning is like pornography. Yes, I love it when you tell that to the class. There's a good chuckle about it. Yeah, I like that. It's certainly attention getting. Uh, another possible title is Be Interested, Not Interesting. Yes. I've made a little card. Every time you mention it in class, I'm like, yes, I have the card. That's a possible title. Yay. That's exciting. Wow. So this is so fun to do a podcast with you. It is. It's been delightful. Yeah. yeah, I have one last question. Are you ready? I'm ready. What's your favorite vegetable? My favorite vegetable? I have to go with artichoke. Really? How do you like it prepared? Steamed with uh, lemon butter. Mm. But I had it uh, once uh, a la Judeo, which is roasted, and that's awfully good, too. Uh, but I've never made it that way myself. Wow, that's awesome. I got to try that with lemon butter. Yeah. Well, thank you for being on my podcast. And thank you so much for inviting me. It's yeah. always a pleasure to yeah. chat with you.